as you and I study this book, we'd be awakened to grace. Maybe you've been sleeping one time and all of a sudden a thunderstorm or if you have kids that went flying and leaped on your bed and all of a sudden, boom, you're awake. Boom, right away. That's what I pray. That some of our lives, maybe you just need that type of awakening. Maybe some of your lives, you just need that shaking of the Holy Spirit saying, remember? I know we're all at different places, and so Galatians 3 is going to speak to us in different ways. It doesn't take long to look at the first words to say, okay, um, that's not maybe the most endearing words you'd want to hear, is you foolish people. (laughs) But that's how Paul begins chapter 3, or continues his teaching here. He describes them as foolish. There's great concern in Paul's tone, there's great concern in his words, and these particular ones, I think, are meant to jolt them a little bit, to shake them. He describes them as foolish in kind of an overview before we break them down even more. He describes them foolish because they seek to be perfected by the flesh. Specifically, in this case, circumcision was the issue. He describes them as foolish because they suffered many things in vain. He kind of wondered then if they'd been bewitched. That's a unique word, bewitched. It's the idea of the exact Greek word has, which means like to be fascinated, um, to be charmed. Uh, Others describe it as to have a spell cast over them. These people were bewitched. In other words, they were led astray by charming misrepresentations. So Paul's concerned. He wonders if they've been bewitched. He also seeks to reason with them. We're going to look at that reasoning here in a moment. But I began to think about that and think, well, it would be pretty easy to look at the Galatians and call them foolish and, and wonder why they could have been, been bewitched. But the question might be asked is, might someone today be bewitched? Should we not be led by calm reasoning rather than fascinating claims? There is a clear and present danger that we live in. Several overarching themes run through Scripture. First of all, Jesus and John warned of false apostles, false prophets. They would come and, in a sense, bewitch them. In 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15, Paul warns of false apostles who were indeed even ministers of Satan. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul warns of being cheated through philosophy and the principles of this world. In 1 Timothy 4, 1-3, Paul warns that there would be some who depart from the faith. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4, 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, Paul warns Timothy that there would be some who turn aside to fables. And they would do it because their ears were tickled. It's a unique phrase. In other words, they'd hear things which would appeal to their flesh. The result would be they'd turn aside to these fables. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Peter hits hard. He see, warns of false teachers who come with destructive heresies by covetousness, exploiting with deceptive words. And all those, as you look all through the New Testament especially, were warned and clearly confirmed that there's great danger of being bewitched. God's Word declared that danger will be ever-present. And it is clearly present. 
Because we can be beleaguered by traditions of men. We talked about legalism a couple weeks ago. Denominationalism. We are salted by philosophies of men. Humanism we encounter. Secularism, postmodernism. All those philosophies which put men at the middle of determining truth. We're lured by false teachers who appeal to greed, the health and wealth prosperity gospel. It's all over the TV. They're appealing to people's greeds and idols. We can be bewitched. We're challenged by false doctrines that deny God and Jesus. Evolution. The Jesus Seminar. We're surrounded by it. and We're challenged by those false doctrines. We're assailed by changing trends. Easy divorce. Same-sex marriage. Gender equality. If we're not careful, we can be bewitched. You see, it's possible to be saved and detour from the faith. This is why instruction in the New Testament is so important because our faith can be fragile. we got to watch out. It needs to be strengthened. We'll enter into Galatians 3. It's meant to strengthen our faith. It's meant to illuminate to us the danger we face. There is a clear and present danger we face today, and if we're not careful, if we don't pay attention, we'll be bewitched. Now the question on the table might be, what were the Galatians' foolish actions that Paul talks about? What was going on here? Well, what was going on is two things which are so significant in your Christian walk, you probably overlook them every day. The first thing that these foolish Galatians did is they contradicted the work of Christ. The main thing that Paul does to help the Galatians here is to see why their actions are so foolish. And that's why you see it right away in verse 1. Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, it was unbelievably incredible to Paul that anyone who'd seen Christ crucified in the gospel would get caught up in legalism. You see, the death of Christ for our sin shows how hopelessly lost we are. That we can't make any contribution to our salvation. Really, it's the stumbling block of the cross, isn't it? It's the thing that makes it so offensive is that it means we ourselves can't do anything to enhance our justification or sanctification. In Galatians 5.11, Paul says, If I preach circumcision, the stumbling block of the cross has been removed. You see, the Galatians were foolish because they contradicted the work of Christ. You see, not only does the death of Christ for our sins show how hopelessly lost we are, it shows how utterly sufficient the atonement is which Christ made for us. That it should take the death of the Son of God to atone for my sin should shut my mouth forever. It should bring my life to an end. (laughs) And that it was no less the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me, which awakens in us new life. Which awakens grace. You see, the cross cuts right to and kills our independent, self-reliant, insubordinate me and insubordinate you. And it's that cross which quickens in us a new life that we experience by faith in Christ. Therefore, when we or the Galatians follow these Judaizers by erecting this ladder of law to try to get to heaven, we contradict 
the work of Christ. We can't build a ladder high enough. And you can't look at the person next to you and say, hey, my ladder's a little higher than theirs. I guess I'm more acceptable in God's eyes. If we look at God's holiness, which is infinite, and I'm here and Ken Ness is here, and then, and then there's someone else here, we, we can't look at each other and say, well, you're farther ahead than me. We can only look up at the holiness and say, we're not even close. We're not even close. And when we begin to trust in the ladder of our law and following the law, we're in big trouble. You see, we nullify the grace of God. We remove the stumbling block of the cross. And when we do that, we show how bewitched and utterly foolish we are. This is the first reason Paul gives why the Galatians are foolish. It contradicts the work of Christ on the cross. But it's not the only reason he gives. The second one is really hard-hitting as well. They were foolish because they contradicted the work of the Spirit. Paul begins to show them how their action contradicts the work of the Spirit by reminding them how they received the Spirit at the start of their Christian life. And he raises in verse 2 three questions. And they're very important we consider them. Look at verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Here's the three questions. What's the relationship between coming a Christian and receiving a Spirit? It's a good question. Second one, what's the evidence that the Spirit is even present in your life and my life? And third, how do you receive the Spirit? All important questions. The answer to the first question is that becoming a Christian means receiving the Spirit. You see, Paul assumes into this verse that all Christians have already received the Spirit. It's not something that happens later. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. Romans 8-9 touches upon this, just to give you one such passage. Paul, in this case, is writing to the church in Rome, and he says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. In other words, if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. So you have the Spirit of God within you. As a Christian, you're no longer your own. You've been bought by Christ. You're possessed by the Holy Spirit. He's he's within you. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives within you. You have a dynamic in your life you did not have before. It's the Holy Spirit. But the second question Paul seems to be alluding to is what is the evidence of the Spirit's presence in your life? And he mentions a couple. If you look farther down, verse 5, he says, Does he then who provide you with the Spirit and works miracles among you? There must have been some miracles taking place in the church in Galatia. And Paul's saying, hey, look around. There's some miraculous things going on here. Do you really think you conjured those things up? (laughs) Isn't that evidence of the Spirit that's work among you? I mean, no church can look at people being born again and say, wow, we really structured our church program so well, it's bringing people to the faith. No, we can structure programs to leave the Holy Spirit out, but when the Spirit works, we have no reason to boast, but we boast in God. The evidence of the Spirit's presence in their life, one was miracles. There were miracles being done. There was one evidence they could point to, was what the Spirit was doing in their midst, made me ask a question. 
what's going on in my life and your life that can only be attributed to the Spirit? What can you point to in your life that you could never claim any responsibility for, but it's got to be the Holy Spirit? I think that's a good question. I would think there should always be things in our life that we could never claim. We could always just say, that's a God thing going on. I got, I got no way to explain that. I got no way to explain how I handled this situation, how I came through it. I got no reason to have any peace. The doctor's diagnosis said cancer. I should be overwhelmed, but for some reason I'm not. I'm not amazed at the cancer. I'm amazed at his love, as we just sang about. Who explains stuff? How do you explain that but by the Spirit? Maybe there should be more of that in our life. Look at verse 3. He says, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? We'll stop there. In other words, there's a power dynamic at work in a believer's life that can only be attributed to the Spirit. And I would add there's an assurance in a believer's life which can only be attributed to the Spirit. Romans 8, 15 and 16. Look what happens when we receive the Spirit. Paul writes, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you received a spirit of adoption. And as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That is assurance. And that we only get from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God brings assurance in our life like nothing else. It's the Holy Spirit that gives life and assurance to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the way the Spirit entered your life is the way the Spirit advances your life. Which comes to the third question. How the Spirit is received. Don't know. <laughs> I do know how the Spirit's received. I don't know why the mic's going crazy. But the third question of verse 2 raises, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by faith? It's a rhetorical question. How do you receive the Spirit? Paul's saying, of course, it was by faith. Paul wants them to remember when the gospel was preached and when they believed it, they didn't plan it. They didn't force it. Faith came to them like dawn into a darkened town. The Spirit came into their heart and they cried out, Abba, Abba, Father. They cried out, Jesus is my Lord. Thanks, Jay. We'll get this fixed. Thanks, guys. So Paul wants them to remember this gospel is preached and they believed. And I said, they didn't plan it, they didn't force it, it just, the Spirit came on them. And their darkened lives and, and the Spirit brought new life and new hope. And it came by faith. Not by the works of the law. And so this Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God came upon them. And the Word of God cut through all their defenses. And the Spirit of God laid them bare before God. The old self, the old rebellion, they died. And the Spirit of God took up residence in their life. And in their foolish thoughts, and in their foolish minds, they contradicted the work of the Spirit by saying... We can be sanctified by the works of the law. Paul is already writing to saved people. 
And his first contention is, you've been saved, you've been justified by faith. His second contention is going on now and saying, you believe you can be sanctified by the law, but you can't even be sanctified by it. You're sanctified by faith. It's all by faith in Christ. It's all about his work, not ours. Now notice the contradictions in verse 2. The contrast is between the works of the law and the hearing of faith. And in verse 3, the contrast is between the beginning by the Spirit and trying to be completed by the flesh. Now, in order to avoid this mistake, it would be kind of helpful to understand what the flesh is. It's not the physical. It's the old eye, which cherishes independence and self-assertion. You see, the flesh is the autonomous self. You might want to jot down Romans 8, 7 and all of Romans 7 for that matter. But don't think the flesh is always wicked in that sense. We don't always think that. You see, in the self, it can also be religious or subtle. Now, we know that the self in its irreligious form flaunts its insubordination to God and immorality, idolatry, envy, jealousy, etc. The list goes on. But in its religious form, the flesh is subtle. There's a subtlety in its insubordination and self-determination, and it manifests itself in philosophy and Christian growth, which encourages people to begin with faith, but then to grow by works. And isn't that subtle? And sometimes we don't help matters too well. I'll explain that a little bit more. Notice verse 3 very carefully. It's not directed to those who are yet to start the Christian life. It's written for those who began already. And now they're in grave danger of trying to live the Christian life in a way that nullifies grace. The point of the verse is that you must go on in the Christian life the same way you started it. And since we began by the work of the Spirit, we must go on relying on the Spirit. And the essence of the Christian Galatian heresy, I should say, is that teaching that you begin the Christian life by faith And then you grow in the Christian life by works. In other words, that is drawing on the powers in yourself to make your contribution to salvation. It's what they were being taught. And Paul needs to correct it. Because there's a huge danger. Now, as you look at Galatians 3, 1 through 5, you might be, man, it just doesn't relate to me a lot. I don't really get why Paul's so distraught. Now I want you to know one of the many reasons Galatians 3... 1 through 5 is here is God wants you to be tired of your failures. God knows how hard we try the Christian life and all the things we do hoping that there would be a depth in spirituality come because of the things we do. And you know as well as I do, we fail because we put our faith in those efforts, not in the one who can empower those efforts. And that's a very important distinction. Think of this modern form of heresy. God helps those who help themselves. Oh, really? Maybe we should just put God helps, period. Because outside of Him, we don't have any hope. Only failure awaits those who try to help themselves. If you buy into that as a way of advancing in a Christian life, you've put works where faith belongs. You see, faith is the only response to God's Word, which makes room for the Spirit to work in us and through us. Let me show you how subtle this is. Let's say you're struggling with a certain sin. Let's say gossip. 
And you say, you know what, I'm going to try to structure my life. I'm going to carry some questions in my pocket. Whenever I'm tempted to gossip, I'm going to pull out the questions. Or I'm going to remember this. And, and you try and you try and you try. And you begin to trust in those disciplines. And you begin to fail. You say, wow, what's wrong with me? I thought God was going to help me. Or you struggle with lust and you say, you know what, I'm going to put uh, some disciplines in my life that will help me. I'm going to block things on the web. I'm going to order my life in a certain way that all these disciplines will prevent me from lusting. And you put all these disciplines in place. And you keep failing. And you wonder why. Because you put your trust in the disciplines. Not in the Spirit of God. And that's what Paul's getting at. Oh, by the way, all those things in discipline in your life are really important. Because God can use them. And does use them. To empower us. And to lead us towards purity. So don't get me wrong, I'm not speaking down on them. I'm speaking down on when we trust those. And don't exercise faith in the Spirit of God to bring us victory. Your disciplines will never bring you victory. Only the Spirit of God can bring you victory. What the disciplines do is expose the weakness in our flesh. Because they tell us we are weak, that thus the disciplines. But it's the Spirit of God that breathes life and new life. And how many believers have you heard who's tried to structure their life in certain ways and done certain things and their life was falling apart and they say, somewhere in there I surrendered to the Spirit of God and all of a sudden... I found victory. What they're testifying to is this. Sanctification is a work of the Spirit. It's not works of the law. It's not following stuff. But that brings a question on the table for you and me this morning. How are you striving for spiritual growth? By faith in the power of the Spirit? Or the power of your flesh? The power of your own works? I have some practical advice I humbly put forth to you. Because to be honest, some of us need CPR this morning. We need the Spirit of God to breathe life into us. And to help us walk in faith the way we were meant to. And how do we avoid this ever-present danger of walking by the flesh and by the law? How do we live a Christian life in such a way that we can say it's not I but Christ? How do we do that? There's three things, and they're not easy if we really understand what they are. The C is confess. It's a daily acknowledging that apart from Christ, you can do nothing of eternal value. It's daily confessing your dependence. This is where we need to start. You might want to control your anger, and you might want to try harder to do it. No, you need to start here. And confessing, you can't. But Christ in you can. Big distinction. Christ in you can. And you need to confess that. Without Christ, without his power, I am going to fail. No matter how good your efforts are. Confess. You know what? We resist grace when our guilt and shame have not been adequately dealt with. And I need to say that. Some of you are experiencing great guilt and shame. That's why Paul talked about the cross so much. Because we need to come to the cross 
It's where we find grace. It's where we find forgiveness. It's where we find strength. It's where we find help. Not just help around the edges, but real power to live out this Christian life. You and I need to daily, regularly confess we need Christ. And He alone is going to give us victory. We need to pray. Not just a general flippant prayer, but a prayer that Christ would make us abound in love. That grace would reign in our life. That Christ would empower our conversations and our actions and our decisions so it would be Christ in us. It's great that Paul said to the church in Colossae, he says, there's Christ in you and he's the hope of glory. You see, Christ is our hope. And we need to pray as if he's our hope and that we are dependent upon him. Confess and pray and three, rely. And this is the key. The ongoing work of the Spirit enables us to love. Enables us to live as we should. And we need to trust that. We need to trust when we look at His promises and act upon Him. We're trusting the heart of God. We're relying upon Him. When He says fear not and we choose to trust in Him, to rely upon Him, we're trusting Him to do what only He could do. But we need to trust Him. We need to rely upon Him. I heard this story about a magician. And he had a group of people before him. And he had had this glove sitting on one side of a table and he had a a book on the other. And he said to him, he says, I'm going to perform an incredible miracle. This glove is going to pick up this book. And so he was there and he's trying his little thing and the glove's not moving. It's it's not moving at all. (laughs) Certainly not picking the book up. He said, this is a great miracle. Hang with me, he said to the audience. He then took his hand, put it in the glove, reached over, picked up the book and said, ha, isn't that great? And they're like, no, not so much. (laughs) They're like, that's no big deal. And one of the persons there said, it's easy to do when the hand's in the glove. You know, that empty glove is like your Christian life and my Christian life. We keep trying to pick the book up. We keep trying to find victory. We keep trying to claim that and claim that. But unless that hand comes in, there is no victory. And I hope you're tired of living the Christian life with an empty glove. And you can have the best intentions in the world. You can look at that glove and, and try to structure it forward. You can do everything you can in your power. But guess what? The glove will never pick up the book. Unless the hand is in it. The Holy Spirit longs to empower your life. That you could do more than pick up books. But that you could walk in victory. And conquer the very things that are weighing you down so heavily. That you and I can act with trust that the power of Christ will give you and I divine enablement. That you and I would trust that He is our strength. That He is our deliverer. He is our ever-present help in time of trouble. Confess, pray, and rely. And together we can walk in faith in this process of sanctification and we can continue the walk just like we began it, even in the midst of ever-present danger. Let's pray.
Lord, sometimes dying to self is never easy. Kind of hard to admit that even on our best days, we can't find victory apart from you. It's so easy, God, to look at our lives and think that we're not axe murderers, and so we're okay. Or we haven't done the biggie sins, and so we must be righteous, only to find ourselves 